The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. This is Scorebox. The headlines this hour. White House trade advisor Peter Navarro is forced to backtrack, saying the U.S.-China trade deal is not over. This after earlier comments suggested the agreement was no longer intact, hitting markets. Apple says it'll switch to its own chips for Macs, ending a 15-year relationship with Intel. The tech giant CEO Tim Cook telling developers it's a big leap in how the company powers its products. Apple Silicon will bring amazing technologies, industry-leading performance, and a common architecture across all of our products. SoftBank sheds its shares in T-Mobile, selling $21 billion worth of stock as it divests two-thirds of its stake in a bid to raise funds for its buyback and debt drawdown plans. Another deal, another investigation. The European Commission launching a four-month antitrust probe into the LSE's $27 billion bid for Refinitiv amid competition concerns over the exchange merger. And coming up on Scorebox, data dominates with hopes that the June PMI data will show the bounce back continuing as the UK prepares to review the two-metre rule that could be the salvation of pubs and restaurants this summer. The White House has hurriedly walked back comments from top trade advisor Peter Navarro that the U.S.-China trade deal was, quote, over. Asian markets and U.S. futures turned lower after Navarro said the pact was off because of a lack of trust and transparency over the origins of the coronavirus, but was quickly overruled by the president. The widely known China hawk went on to say his comments were taken out of context. Let's get out to Sam, who's got more on the story. And Sam, we've had a flurry of activity here. Mr. Pompeo flying off to Hawaii. We're not getting very much detail about what may have been agreed or disagreed at that meeting. But clearly, there does seem to be some confusion around the messaging from the White House team on exactly where the current state of relations with China lies. Absolutely, Jeff. Good morning to you. It's been a very interesting morning, uh, at least. The Peter Navarro has now confirmed that the US-China trade deal is not off. Uh, he had uh, been reported to, to have told Fox News uh, earlier that the trade deal with China was over, but he has now clarified and cleared things up in a statement uh, to CNBC. He told us that uh, my comments have been taken wildly out of context. They had nothing at all to do with the phase one trade deal, which continues in place. I was uh, simply speaking to the lack of trust we now have of the Chinese Communist Party 
after they lied about the origins of the China virus and foisted a pandemic upon the world. Now, as you suggested, US President Donald Trump has since tweeted also clarifying these comments, saying that the China trade deal is fully intact. Hopefully they will continue to live up to the terms of the agreements. It's certainly bringing some relief for investors over on the mainland markets today. The Shanghai Composite are now up around 0.2%. The Shenzhen Composite, meanwhile, up around 0.4%. And certainly bouncing back from those losses that we saw following those comments in morning trade. Uh, but certainly US-China tensions uh, on other fronts uh, could perhaps still cap gains because as Navarro suggested there, there are still issues to do with the origin of the virus, but also China's uh, transparency. And certainly US President Donald Trump's tweet suggests that there are issues around trust when it comes to the phase one trade deal. And to make matters even worse, when it comes to issues around trust, uh, the US is now targeting media companies on uh, Chinese media companies on American soil. It now says it will designate four more Chinese state media outlets as foreign embassies uh, after claims that they've been used by Beijing to spread uh, propaganda. Now, they'll be now added to a list of Chinese companies which are already under very tight restrictions, which requires them to be essentially treated like foreign embassies. The U.S. has said uh, in the past that uh, it would limit the number of Chinese journalists allowed to work for Chinese media outlets in the United States. And since then, we've seen China hitting back, revoking some of the accreditations of American journalists working in China. Also leaving investors a little bit wary today is uh, EU-China relations after the EU uh, said that it would, uh, was raising concerns about the Hong Kong national security law, uh, saying that this uh, risks very negative consequences. Of course, this coming uh, after the uh, EU and China uh, had high-level talks uh, yesterday, which included uh, President Xi Jinping. Uh, they said they've been in touch with other G7 members and are urging China to... Uh, reconsider imposing the law, saying that uh, it seriously undermines the one country, two systems principle, and they wish to see Hong Kong's high degree of autonomy remain in place. Uh, they also talked about trade. The EU has, of course, been pushing for greater access to China's markets uh, in terms of uh, European companies, uh, and they have repeatedly said they want a more leveling level playing field. So certainly a lot driving investor sentiment over on the mainland today. Jeff, back to you. Sam, thank you so much for helping uh, lay that out for us. Steve, let's bring you into the conversation here and a very good morning to you uh, from uh, your favourite brewery in Sussex, I believe. Yeah, my favourite part of the world, as you well know, Jeffrey. Yeah, it's a great part of town, and we'll 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 bring the viewers the the joys of my home county uh, in a few moments' time. But but I think it's absolutely fascinating listening to what you've been saying about Mr. Trump and what Mr. Navarro has been saying and what Sam was just saying as well. Um, but I would say it's something that you and I have talked about a lot over the years. And it's if you've got a problem over here, uh, then get people to look over there as well. And and quite frankly, um, everything that Sam was saying was was fascinating about Mr. Navarro and that as well. But I'll say there's a couple of other things going on as well. And when I was looking at the Times this morning, I saw this magnificent picture of a carrier fleet with a whole host of warplanes flying over it as well. Uh, and of course, this is an article about the fact that the USS Nimitz uh, and indeed um, one of the other carrier groups, the USS Theodore Roosevelt carrier group, plus USS Ronald Reagan, which operates out of Japan, all three of these carrier groups are potentially carrying out exercises uh, in the Western Pacific at the moment. Again, a show of strength uh, from the US as 
well. But again, looking over here, uh, perhaps he's about detracting from problems over here. And the president is suffering in the polls. And he had a, a very, let's we say, uh, uninspiring uh, Tulsa uh, um, uh, speech and, and convention uh, earlier in the last few days as well. His poll numbers domestically are looking really tough. And I just looked at a couple of polls. The Caps-Harris poll had Biden 20 percentage points ahead over issues such as race and policing. I was looking at a real clear politics poll as well, which had Biden up just around about four percentage points in May, now has him up around about 10 percentage points. So I would suggest a lot of the sabre rattling that the president is showing at the moment towards China it is perhaps as much about the domestic polling and the domestic problems that the president's got as anything else. And of course, November looming large. And at the moment, um, the president does need something to get his campaign back on track. That's a terrific point, Steve. I think what it illustrates here, given that the Dow futures shed 440 points after Mr. Navarro made these remarks, is that there are two constituents here that Trump really cares about. One is obviously uh, the market because he wants to maintain this positive performance for stocks uh, running into the end of the year so that he can claim that we cracked the virus, we kept the economy sound, and the markets have responded positively to that. And the point that you're making about the base, there was a a story out Friday suggesting uh, the Chinese are going to step up their purchasing of soybeans, of corn, of ethanol, all those things they agreed to do back when that deal was signed on January the 15th. And uh, as you're making the point there, the people who are selling a lot of those things to the Chinese represent the Trump heartlands, the base ultimately, who've been sitting here on the sidelines waiting to get the benefits of this trade deal uh, after, as we know, um, seeing some sales dwindle around the sabre rattling over the last two years. I think the interesting question moving on from here, and I will refer back to it, that Pompeo meeting in Hawaii, which took place in a way that was very low key, and we've seen very little detail from it. Does that mean that nothing happened, that nothing was agreed, agreed or does it mean that uh, the Secretary of State established a new new level of uh, liaison with the Chinese here and that Peter Navarro maybe is just not on the same page. Yeah, I, I think you make a very valid point. But what I want to do is maybe if, if I can go back uh, into ancient history last year. I mean, it just seems such a long way, way ago. But we used to worry about three things when you, I and Karen used to stand at the wall. One, we used to worry about the state of Europe and the Brexit negotiations and the situation there. Two, we would worry uh, about the growth of the Chinese economy. And three, we would worry extensively uh, about this trade war as well. Well, quite frankly, all three of those are still on the table. And despite some positive mood music in the last couple of days regarding Brexit as well, there are still grave concerns about what happens uh, come October with the talk about potentially uh, a hard Brexit rather than a softer Brexit with some form of trade deal. So we'll leave that one aside. But in terms of what the president needs, as you quite rightly says, he needs an ebullient stock market and he needs job creation and he needs both of those pretty damn fast. Now, will sabre rattling and tearing up the phase one of the deal uh, and perhaps making no progress on phase two of the deal with China as well, will that create a higher stock market? And I think 
won't. And again, who knows on these markets, but I think unambiguously one can say, no, it won't as well. So despite, as you quite rightly say, Navarro saber rattling, perhaps not on message with the rest of the team. If the president wants economic wealth, perhaps creating a new front against the Chinese, perhaps that's not the way forward. There was a bit of good international politics news potentially in the last 24 hours. And of course, it's related to the China story and related to Navarro as well. And that's the fact that the Russians and the Americans have got around the table to talk about non-proliferation talks and replacing uh, current nuclear deals. So there is a little bit of progress somewhere, I guess. Terrific. Steve, we'll see you a little bit later. Steve out there uh, on the road once again, proving that in Sussex, it's never too early. Uh, Let's have a look at the futures then. Let's just show you what the board is indicating. We've talked a lot about uh, the um, uh, conversation with uh, Mr. Navarro and what he ultimately had to walk back. The futures at the moment indicating that we will have just, I think, a flat to positive start to the trading session. Uh, As we pointed out, the U.S. markets uh, closed the trading day in positive territory here. I just wanted to remind you what these numbers look like. Year to date, the Nasdaq is up over 12%. 12%. Incredible, isn't it? Um, Given the environment that we're actually living through at the moment. But it just tells you an awful lot about the drivers that we're seeing push these markets higher. And I think Apple yesterday sort of weighed in and uh, gave us another story to build on that technology messaging and that technology momentum. Um, The fact that Apple has said, you know what, we think we can make our own chips and we can run our machines more quickly than they're currently running on Intel was fascinating. Plus, they, if you read into the detail, they did a few things to try and keep the um, uh, authorities off their back as well in terms of market access. And overall, uh, we did see uh, technology companies uh, do better uh, as a result of uh, the messaging around Apple and uh, obviously the rebound uh, off the back of Peter Navarro's uh, walk back. I will tell you, I mean, it's interesting. Should we have a look at the chip makers? Can we do that? Brilliant. Let's just show you then uh, how some of the chip makers uh, have fared on the back of uh, the Apple news flow here. And you might have expected that it would be a a broadly negative story, given what Apple was saying. But of course, I don't think Apple is actually going to set up plants and manufacture the chips itself. It will contract this out. It will license them to other chip makers, this severing a 15-year relationship with Intel, which will inevitably be good for some other other chip makers, possibly a few, given the volume that Apple might want to see. Um, isn't it interesting at the number of um, perma bears who, who seem to be uh, switching tack now and are talking about how we're going to see stocks continue to run here? We need to see 3,200, 3,300. How high am I bid for the S&P to the end of the year? The latest uh, um, uh, that we're seeing. Uh, Jonathan uh, Golab, I, I just wanted to mention uh, the Credit Suisse um, analyst over there, lifted the year-end target now to 3,200 from 2,700, uh, despite uh, his previously bearish uh, stance. He says downside risks are less ominous. What do we call a collective of, uh, of bears who then suddenly become more bullish, 
Uh, you know, the contrarians out there are probably getting a bit nervous about this, but I would suggest, uh, and I will propose this, a capitulation. A capitulation of analysts who then suddenly start to look more bullish towards the markets. Yield curve control very much in evidence as we look at the Treasury curve here. I will just point out for, for you that uh, this, the big daddy, the 10-year note here, uh, we are up uh, at um, uh, 07 uh, this indicates really that um, response to the more positive risk on attitude. So you see a little bit of selling in the Treasury note and the yield inevitably rises here, seven-tenths of one percent. Anybody else read Jeremy Siegel, the uh, Wharton professor, who's made a very big claim that we have now seen the end of the 40-year bull market for bonds? Very big stake in the ground. Will he prove to be right? Well, on this evidence, if we continue to head in this direction, quite possibly. President Trump has suspended some visas for foreign workers until the end of the year and extended a pause on certain green cards. The White House says the new immigration restrictions should help more Americans get jobs amid fallout from the virus. The U.S. administration says the freeze will impact about a half a million people. However, business leaders have attacked the suspension, which also covers highly skilled workers. The World Health Organization has urged countries to work together to defeat the virus. This after the agency reported the highest rise in new infections globally earlier this week. The majority of new cases came from the U.S. after individual states began to relax virus restrictions. More than nine people worldwide have been infected by the virus and over 470,000 have died. The WHO's Director General warned the world is facing a social, economic and political crisis and countries will need a coordinated response. The greatest threat we face now is not the virus itself. It's the lack of global solidarity and global leadership. We cannot defeat this pandemic with a divided world. Together, we must work to ensure the lessons of this pandemic is learned and the world never again finds itself unprepared. Coming up on the programme then, the fallout from Wirecard's missing billions continues with investors around the world facing steep losses as the share price collapses. Uh, We will get a take from Frankfurt on the latest when we come back. And just a reminder, if you want to keep up to date on all the latest news here, the US-China trade deal, the coronavirus infection count, check out the Squawk Box podcast. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse.
Welcome back. The European Commission has opened an antitrust probe into the London Stock Exchange's proposed acquisition of the data group Refinitiv. Commission Vice President Margrethe Vestager said the EU fears the deal could limit the trading of government bonds in rival trading venues, as well as restrict access to broader financial market data. The Commission is also investigating the proposed merger between FCA and PCA and uh, last year blocked two major prospective deals between Siemens and Alstom and ThyssenKrupp and Tata Steel. Uh, let's bring Steve back into the conversation here. Uh, Steve, we, we've sat around this desk a lot over the years and talked about the need for consolidation in the exchange space. We are seeing that consolidation. Um, I was just looking at the definitive uh, statement on this, the press release, which dates back from August the 1st, 2019. Seems a little late in the day here for the Commission to be pulling this up for a check. I'm going to go back even further than you. I'm going to mention two names from the past here, Jeffrey. I'm going to say Don Cruikshank and Werner Seifert. Now, I'm sure a lot of our viewers remember those names because Don Cruikshank used to be the boss of the London Stock Exchange. Werner Seifert was the boss of the Deutsche Börse. And these two gentlemen got together in the year 2000, and I remember going to the press conference in Aldgate as well, to announce something called IX. Now, IX was going to be the pan-European global marketplace. It was going to be the Deutsche Börse taking over the London Stock Exchange, pretty much, give or take, really, and creating this dominant powerhouse. Now, at the time, of course, Europe would have been whooping with joy about having a European dominant powerhouse uh, based, of course, in London for trading purposes, but pretty much headquartered in Frankfurt as well. That one failed. That one failed. And indeed, all the bids for the London Stock Exchange since, including the one uh, that was ultimately turned down from the Euronex as well, where Clara First, uh, Dame Clara First, was the boss of the LSE, they've all failed. And in the meantime, uh, Xavier Rowley uh, and now the current management team at the London Stock Exchange uh, have tried to build the company up to make it more uh, insulated from overtaking uh, foreign uh, interventions, so to speak, either from the States or indeed from Europe as well. But what is fascinating here is the biggest threat uh, to the LSE now is not not these other big bosses. Actually, it's a lot of smaller bosses taking the business. We've talked a lot about multilateral trading uh, facilities and forums over the years, but also the fact that, quite frankly, the underlying trading business is oscillating. There is volatility in the IPO market. We've talked for yeah, about a decade about de-equitization, i.e. the smaller base of shares listed on the market. So what have the teams done? They decided to go down a different route. And goodness me, uh, Karen's mentioned this many times, data. Data is the king. When we looked at Google and Facebook and couldn't work out what the product was in the early years, then we realized, well, we were the product. Data is the product. So that's what the LSE's done with Affinitiv as well. They've tried to make themselves insulated by being uh, a vertically integrated with the, uh, the clearinghouse as well, but also bringing on data as well because that is where the real money is going forward for many, many traders and many market participants. And, and I think, to be fair, it's only right that perhaps the European Commission uh, and others, I think the DOJ, were asking questions of the market participants as well on their side of the Atlantic as well, are just asking questions about what kind of position this creates as well. 
Uh, and the reason why I have a degree of sympathy for the investigation, Jeff, as well, is I know many participants who have looked at their data bill and their bill from the LSE and other providers and see how it's shot up over the years and have real concerns about their access to data uh, at an affordable price. And why don't I just chuck in one thing as well? Doesn't it add a little bit of a sous of interest on the Brexit debate as well, that the Europeans are looking at our British deal as well? Quite frankly, I think that's a, 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 a misguided argument, but I bet it'll be made nonetheless. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think there is, I think you make a very interesting point there because inevitably, given how critical as we move through this Brexit transition process, uh, London has been as a provider of capital to the rest of Europe, there will be concerns, I presume, about access to flow for trading of Eurozone debt at a time when the Commission is now talking about issuing paper on its own behalf. And inevitably, given the shallowness of some capital markets in Europe, inevitably a lot of that paper will be sold or will be traded in London. So you can see there is a great deal of self-interest when it comes to the European or the Eurozone view of what's going on with some of these exchange deals. I will also say, Steve, uh, another name to throw into the mix, Xavier Rollet, <clears throat> someone we used to talk to a lot. I remember he called this deal potentially obsolete because he felt that the technology uh, involved actually wasn't up to muster. But we'll we'll park this to one side. We'll come back to you a little bit later on. We've got a lot of stories to talk about this morning. So let's move on. Let's refocus on technology. SoftBank has announced it's planning to sell off $21 billion worth of its T-Mobile stock, which represents around 65% of its stake in the company. SoftBank is looking to free up cash after several of its investments were affected by the pandemic. The company posted record losses of $18 billion in May, hit by the failure of its big bet, WeWork, to go public. SoftBank executives are set to suffer heavy losses from the collapse in Wirecard's share price following their €900 million investment into the German fintech last year. According to the FT, a group of executives from SoftBank and an Abu Dhabi sovereign wealth fund stand to lose hundreds of millions from the investment in Wirecard after the company admitted the €2 billion missing from its balance sheet may have never existed. Its shares are down more than 80% since Thursday. The president of BaFin, the uh, German market regulator, Felix Huffeld, has described Wirecard's grave accounting mistakes as a scandal. It comes as BaFin finds itself under scrutiny for not investigating the German payment company earlier. Let's bring Annetta into the conversation. Annetta, as you were pointing out yesterday, the regulator seemed more interested in uh, investigating the journalists that were pursuing the story than the story itself. But obviously, we're now moving on in this process. What is BaFin intending to do to try and uh, restore its image? Well, uh, most likely they will look into uh, what and why things went so wrong. Obviously, uh, what they were also saying yesterday, the biggest mistake was that they didn't push hard enough to get Wirecard under their scrutiny because only the Wirecard bank was technically um, regulated by BaFin, the financial watchdog, and that's 
uh, one of the issues here that tech companies, which are more or less performing uh, financial services, are not under the uh, regulation of the financial watchdog in Germany. And I think this is going to change very fast, given that uh, huge scandal. I've never heard someone uh, from a financial regulator to be so outspoken like Felix Hufeld yesterday at that Frankfurt Finance Summit when he was calling that a disaster, most likely the biggest disaster ever happening to a German DAX company. And of course, it's a serious blow to the financial culture of Germany. The same actually came out of Berlin. Altmaier, the economy minister, yesterday also was stepping out saying we have, we really have to understand that story. We have to understand how things could go so wrong and how someone could actually uh, do bogus um, uh, accounting in, in that um, amount to that amount. So what is happening now is that the prosecutor is stepping in. Um, according to Roy they are even considering the arrest of the former CEO. They are looking into who actually was informed and who was responsible for that business. And I guess this is uh, something which we will now watch more or less on a, on a daily basis. And at the same time, it looks that the um, financial side, they don't want to let uh, Wirecard go as such, because obviously they're sitting on huge loans to the company. And according to Reuters as well, the liquidation value of the company would only amount to some 750 million euros. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.